Hello, this is the Journal of American History podcast for December 2017. My name is Benjamin Irvin. I am the new executive editor of the Journal of American History, and I will be your host for today's episode. This podcast is dedicated to the people of Puerto Rico and the Puerto Rican diaspora. On September 20 of this year, Hurricane Maria, a Category 4 hurricane, battered the island of Puerto Rico. The storm left millions of residents without water, electricity, or cellular service for weeks, even months on end. By some estimates, the cost of the hurricane's damage may range up to $90 billion or more. Hurricane Maria struck Puerto Rico at a particularly difficult moment in the island's history. For more than a decade now, Puerto Rico has been laboring under the burden of a massive public debt, more than $70 billion. Chapter 9 of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code prohibits Puerto Rico from declaring bankruptcy. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, Puerto Rico's unemployment rate has hovered at or above 10% for more than a decade now. Austerity measures, including increases in sales tax and university tuition, have hindered economic recovery. In June 2016, President Obama signed a law known as PROMESA, the Puerto Rico Oversight, Management, and Economic Stability Act. The law created an oversight board to manage Puerto Rico's debt, but this board has come under criticism because its members are chosen by Congress and the President. Puerto Rico's residents have little say in its membership. On account of Puerto Rico's economic crises, nearly half a million people emigrated from the island between 2000 and 2016. As the date of our recording in mid-November, another 150,000 Puerto Ricans had left the island in the wake of Hurricane Maria. The long-term economic and demographic harm caused by Hurricane Maria threatens to prolong Puerto Rico's financial crisis indefinitely. By coincidence, the December 2017 issue of the Journal of American History includes two articles about the history of Puerto Rico and the Puerto Rican diaspora. I say coincidence because the journal accepted these articles and scheduled them for publication more than a year ago, long before Hurricane Maria formed in the Atlantic Ocean. But these articles provide an excellent introduction to Puerto Rican history. The first examines the United States' colonial relationship with Puerto Rico. The second explores the lives and identities of Puerto Ricans who migrated to Chicago in the mid to late 20th century. Together, these articles offer useful context for understanding the plight of Puerto Ricans in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. We have invited the authors to join us on this podcast. Our first guest is Anne S. McPherson, Associate Professor of History at the College of Brockport, SUNY. Anne is a historian of the Caribbean. She has written extensively about gender, race, and colonization in Puerto Rico and Belize. Her first book won the Elsa Govea Prize for Best Book in Caribbean History from the Association of Caribbean Historians in 2008. Anne's article, which appears in the December 2017 issue of the Journal of American History, is Birth of the U.S. Colonial Minimum Wage, the Struggle over the Fair Labor Standards Act in Puerto Rico, 1938-1941. to Thank you for joining us, Anne. Thank you, Benjamin. It's very nice to be with you. Anne, your article is about the struggle, a political fight, over a piece of legislation known as the Fair Labor Standards Act and how it applied to Puerto Rico between 1938 and 1941. Before I ask about that piece of legislation, perhaps we should set the table a bit. Let's talk first about the history of Puerto Rico as a territory of the United States. In your article, you use the phrase formal empire to describe the relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico. What does that mean? Puerto Rico, together with the U.S. Virgin Islands, Guam, American Samoa, and the Northern Mariana Islands, are technically called non-incorporated territories of the United States, which means that they're not on a path to statehood, and they are essentially controlled by the U.S. Congress. And so the Constitution has not fully followed the flag. These are, in most cases, American citizens who don't have the same rights as American citizens in what I'll call the metropolitan United States. And so those five territories are what I would call colonies of the United States, and they form a formal empire. And you mentioned the non-incorporation doctrine. How did that come about? 
The non-incorporation doctrine emerged from a set of Supreme Court cases that occurred in the early years after the acquisition of these territories, particularly after 1898. Although the last of these, they're known as the insular cases, the last one was decided in 1922. But essentially, these cases were trying to determine what is the actual relationship between the United States, particularly the federal government, and these new acquisitions. The first of the cases was about tariffs. A number of them are actually about tariffs. The Foraker Act, which was passed in 1900 as a sort of preliminary governing document for Puerto Rico, said that there could be tariffs between Puerto Rico and the United States. And there had never been allowed to be tariffs before between any of the continental territories that were on a path to statehood. And so a court case was brought. The Supreme Court ruled five to four that tariffs could exist between Puerto Rico and the United States. They were shortly thereafter gotten rid of, but the fact that it was determined that they could exist really said, well, Puerto Rico then is not part of the United States. It belongs to and it is controlled by the United States, but it is not part of it. So it doesn't have the same status then as a state or a territory on the way to statehood. So that was really the non-incorporation doctrine. And a scholar named Bartholomew Sparrow, which is a wonderful name, he's written about this, and he's made it very clear that this really changed the kind of country that the United States was from an expanding federation of states into an imperial metropole. And so the non-incorporation doctrine really encodes the colonial relationship between the United States and the five territories that still form the formal empire. And the United States extended citizenship to Puerto Ricans in 1917, and Puerto Rico became a commonwealth in 1952. Did those developments fundamentally change the island's relationship with the United States? I would argue that they did not. There was no true constitutional change that occurred in 1952 when the Commonwealth status was inaugurated. So the federal government has power over the non-incorporated territories in ways that it would never have over any of the states. Constitutional scholars agree nothing really changed. Let's flow backwards in time then to the early 20th century. You write that Congress structured an undemocratic colonial government for Puerto Rico. What were the components of that government? There was, of course, an appointed governor who was always an American. The first appointed Puerto Rican was in 1946, and then two years later, the governorship became elected. So in the period that I'm writing about, it's still an appointed U.S. governor. And then there was... Things shifted in 1917 with the Jones Act, but essentially you had a Puerto Rican Senate and House whose laws and decisions could be immediately overturned by any branch of the federal government. And so their decisions really did not hold, uh, did not have a lot of power. And then the other part, of course, is that Puerto Ricans were subject to federal laws made by Congress in which they had no vote and no representative. So to this day, there is only a non-voting resident commissioner in the House of Representatives, and there are no Puerto Rican voices at all in the U.S. Senate. And your research concerns the late 1930s and the early 1940s when Franklin Roosevelt was in office. What was Roosevelt's approach toward Puerto Rico and the Caribbean and Latin America more broadly? Historians have really focused on FDR in terms of the good neighbor policy, pulling U.S. uh, troops, U.S. Marines, for example, out of Haiti, and really trying to have a more cooperative, alliance-based kind of policy toward Latin America. Puerto Rico 
was looked at in terms of New Deal policies and in terms of economic recovery and reconstruction, and some quite positive things were happening, especially compared to really profound neglect prior to the the New Deal by federal administrations. And so there's an increased amount of aid, an increased amount of attention, and a real desire to try to talk about a different kind of economy for Puerto Rico, a more diversified economy, because it had become extremely dependent on sugar exports, tobacco exports, and increasingly needlework exports, all of them, of course, going to the United States. And so there were discussions of economic diversification. That was all more in the middle 1930s, though. In the late 1930s, the focus becomes much more preparations for war as it becomes increasingly clear that there's going to be global war and there needs to be a hemispheric defense. Puerto Rico, which was very much seen as a strategic acquisition in 1898, again, its military importance is really coming to the fore in the late 1930s. And as I argue, it's really overwhelming thoughts about economic reconstruction and diversification. So there's tremendous congressional appropriations for military buildup in Puerto Rico, far more money that had really been expended through the Depression years on aid, recovery, and reconstruction. So there's much more of a military focus at the same time that the Fair Labor Standards Act and the minimum wage is supposed to be coming into force and really transforming the rights of labor and the standard of living of Puerto Rican workers. Let's explain that for our listeners a bit. What was the Fair Labor Standards Act, and when and why did it become law? The Fair Labor Standards Act was an effort to create a federal minimum wage in a way that would not be struck down by the Supreme Court of the United States. So the justification that was used was that workers involved in interstate commerce their wages could be regulated and a floor could be put under. So this is the minimum wage for workers involved in interstate commerce under the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution, that the federal government had a role in regulating their wages. But in Puerto Rico, because the law did apply there, you have actually a very significant percentage of the labor force that's involved in interstate commerce because anyone in the sugar industry who's not strictly speaking an agricultural worker, such as sugar mill workers or transportation workers, they were workers involved in interstate commerce. Tobacco workers who were not strictly speaking agricultural, so tobacco processing workers, cigarette factory workers, etc., they came under the law, as did needle workers. The majority of needle workers were women. The majority of them were home workers. So this is industrial homework being done in these hamlets you know, across the interior of the island. And then a minority of the needle workers were working in sometimes fairly rudimentary factory settings in more urban centers, sometimes in the port towns, San Juan, Mayagüez in the west, Ponce in the south, for example. And all of them fell under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Given what you've told us about the colonial relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico, I might have expected that Puerto Rico would have been exempted from this minimum wage. How did the Fair Labor Standards Act come to apply to Puerto Rico? The reason why I think that it was applied to the territories was to create absolute uniformity for all American citizens who were covered by the act. And it was particularly to prevent arguments for a Southern wage differential. There was a huge desire, particularly on the part of Southern Democrats, 
to have a lower regional minimum wage in the South, even for covered workers. They'd already managed to exclude agricultural workers and domestic workers, right, which was the majority of the African-American workforce in the South. Now they wanted to even try to get a wage differential for covered workers in the South. And I should say that it looks very much like um, President Roosevelt was quite amenable to that. And he was never really fully behind the universalism of the Fair Labor Standards Act. So let me make sure I understand this dynamic. In an effort to prevent Southern employers from underpaying their workers, presumably they're mostly black workers, New Dealers in Congress inadvertently extended wage protection throughout the territories? Yeah, I would use, the word inadvertently is very apt. And I think that a lot of people who voted for the Fair Labor Standards Act possibly didn't even realize that it was going to apply to the territories. And I suspect when many Americans think about the Great Depression today, they imagine dust bowlers and dirt farmers. How had the Great Depression affected Puerto Rico? The Depression hit Puerto Rico very, very hard. So one of the things that happened was that the domestic market for sugar was shrinking as consumption was shrinking. And so different sectors of sugar producers were competing for that shrinking market. And domestic beet producers had a lot of sway. Puerto Rico's sugar quota in the U.S. market was actually cut in the 1930s. So that was causing unemployment in the sugar industry. In terms of tobacco, it was already an industry in some decline, but it was also experiencing greater unemployment. In terms of needlework, there was a move to move more of it into home needlework where wages were, it was piecework. So the estimates were somewhere between one and four cents per hour was the prevailing wage for home needlework. So we have these sort of wage depression and an increase in unemployment. And whereas unemployment in the United States, I think, peaked at around 25%, 27%, in Puerto Rico it reached 65%. And one of the effects of that was the emergence of an organization of unemployed workers, almost like a union for unemployed workers, called the Protective Union of the Unemployed. And it played a really prominent role in the struggle over the Fair Labor Standards Act. So you have this solidarity between employed or underemployed workers and flat-out unemployed workers. And let me just add that the physical hardships of that economic depression were incredibly intense. So malnutrition was widespread. Children were not being sent to school because they had no clothes. They had no shoes to wear to school. So it was just a profound, profound economic crisis that was affecting the health and well-being of Puerto Ricans across the board. So in 1938, the Fair Labor Standards Act established a minimum wage of 25 cents in Puerto Rico's tobacco, sugar, dock work, and needlework industries. How many workers were involved? Well, the estimates are just over 100,000 workers. That's out of a total population of 1.87 million. I think it's a bit undercounted because I think the estimates of how many home needle workers actually existed and how many were covered were not realistic at the time. So it might have been closer to 120, maybe even 150,000 people, but the official estimates were just over 100,000. And and I should say, and this is an important point, about half-half men and women. So a lot of scholars looking at the FSLA in the United States have looked at how it really excluded a lot more women than men, that covered workers were majority male. But in the case of Puerto Rico, it was about half-half. It's very kind of a, a unique situation. Given that so many workers were involved, how did Puerto Rico's industries respond? Puerto Rican industries, Puerto Rican employers, who were both local Puerto Rican capitalists and 
quite powerful U.S. corporations, particularly in the case of the big four U.S. sugar corporations that were operating on the island, both growing sugar and milling sugar, they were absolutely appalled by what was happening. It's really important to understand that they did not comply with the law. So it was very few covered Puerto Rican workers who actually saw 25 cents per hour in the first year or 30 cents per hour in the second year of the law coming into force. There was just pervasive non-enforcement, pervasive non-compliance. And there was also partial capital strike. So companies were actually shutting down businesses in protest against the law and creating unemployment, exacerbating unemployment in order to essentially say, oh, this isn't going to work. You need to amend this. And then they began to also file lawsuits. The most important one is the lawsuit filed in early 1939 by Eastern Sugar Associates, which was owned by National Citibank. And they filed in federal court to have the law not apply to sugar mills and to have the law deemed unconstitutional. So over the next three years, a battle ensued. Puerto Rican industry and Puerto Rican labor fought over the minimum wage. Tell us more about the contestants in the battle. Uh, I know that a number of unions were involved in this fight. What was the history of labor organization in Puerto Rico? Yeah, so labor had started to organize in the late 1800s under Spanish rule. And the organized labor sector had actually welcomed the arrival of the United States, believing that there would be a greater freedom to organize and agitate for labor rights. And there was definitely some improvement. So there was a very significant labor federation that was formed in 1899. And out of that grew the Socialist Party, the Puerto Rican Socialist Party, quite a distinct entity from the United States Socialist Party. And they were very much affiliated with the American Federation of Labor. So it was kind of a craft unionism. And there were some radical moments in that labor history, particularly in the 1910s. But starting in the 1920s and accelerating in the 1930s, that labor movement, particularly its leadership that was kind of aging in power, was really becoming de-radicalized. And the key thing that happened in 1932, the Socialist Party formed an electoral alliance with the party of business called the Republican Union Party. And that alliance was controlling the legislature from 1932 to 1940. And workers were completely disillusioned with the Socialist Party and its associated labor federation at that point. And there's some wonderful historiography by Puerto Rican historians about how workers were peeling away from both the Labor Federation and the Socialist Party and beginning to form independent unions, some of which were affiliating to the CIO. And there were some, a very small number of CIO organizers, mostly from the National Maritime Union, who were coming into Puerto Rico and beginning to help organize, although I would say the majority of organizing was being done by Puerto Rican labor activists. And so you get unions forming in the sugar industry, sort of plantation by plantation, mill by mill, you also get new unions forming in, on the docks, and there was a huge dock strike in early 1938 that really exposed the militancy of that sector of the workforce. And you also begin to see unions forming among needle workers, particularly shop needle workers who worked more in these kind of factory and workshop settings. And there were some unions among tobacco workers as well. So those are really the main vehicles for labor protest and really the demand by labor that this law be enforced and that it not be amended. They, they were saying, we're American citizens. Why should we have a lower minimum wage than any other American citizen? So that was the fight. You had employers on one side, labor on the other. 
On the side of employers as well, you had there were two different governors in this period, Governor Blanton Winship and then Governor William Leahy. Blanton was a general and Leahy was an admiral, so two military men. They were on the side of amending the law to create a lower minimum wage. And on the side of labor, it had some allies as well, particularly Representative Vito Marcantonio from New York, who had a number of Puerto Ricans in his district and was very interested in labor rights and very interested also in the cause of Puerto Rican independence. And then this man, Robert Claiborne, who was, uh, he became a labor lawyer, but he was actually a businessman from Virginia living in Western Puerto Rico. And he lobbied for the job of wages and hours territorial representative. He took compliance very, very seriously, and he really tried to enforce the law and educate people about the law. And then the third person who was a really important ally of labor was Luis Munoz Marin, who was a politician in Puerto Rico who, at the very same time that the law was passed, had founded a new political party, the Popular Democratic Party, which would go on to narrowly win the November 1940 elections for the Puerto Rican legislature, and then would go on to really dominate Puerto Rican politics into the mid-1960s. And he was the man responsible for leading Puerto Rico into Commonwealth status in the 1950s. At this period of time, he had sort of lukewarm support for the Fair Labor Standards Act. Mainly, he thought that it was okay to apply it to male breadwinners, particularly sugar workers. But he wasn't very interested in applying the law to women working in the needlework industry. And they were very angry with him about that. What about those, the industry and the colonial governors with whom they worked who fought against the minimum wage? What arguments did they make? They constantly harped on the productivity of Puerto Rican workers. And I think this was coded language. I think it was sort of implicitly racialized and gendered language. But they never sort of came out and said, oh, you know, they're black workers or they're mixed race workers or they're mostly women workers and therefore they're not as efficient. It was kind of implied. And essentially, they just said, if we have to pay this kind of wage, we're going to go out of business. There's going to be higher unemployment. You're going to have to increase federal unemployment funding for Puerto Rico, which was already fairly extensive. And you're going to have more unrest on your hands. And, you know, your Latin American good neighbors are not going to look favorably on this. What I would argue is that the law was not being enforced So that, in fact, it was the non-enforcement of the law and the threat of amendment that was already causing unrest. And yet it just seems that the Roosevelt administration could not or did not want to understand that, did not want to see it in that way, and was really from the very beginning open to an amendment and from 1939 on actively seeking an amendment. So here we have New Deal leaders who've managed to get this minimum wage law through Congress who are now themselves trying to weaken it for this particular sector of American workers. Explain that to us, Anne. Why didn't the Roosevelt administration fight for a minimum wage in Puerto Rico? Puerto Rico's military significance came to overwhelm all other considerations for FDR. He needed labor peace, and he believed that he could get labor peace by amending the law and therefore satisfying employers. I think FDR just didn't want to hear about labor strife in Puerto Rico. He wanted quiet so that he could get on with the military buildup and the fortification of Puerto Rico, which was, in his view, absolutely key to the defense of the Caribbean, the defense of the Panama Canal, the defense of the Western Hemisphere. 
What did mobilization or militarization of Puerto Rico entail for President Roosevelt? So it was seeking funding to build up air bases and naval bases. The Isla Grande Air Base near San Juan was a very important first step, and it's where the main airport in Puerto Rico is now, so the basis for that. And also hiring through the Works Progress Administration between 10 and 20,000 workers in the period that I'm talking about to actually do military construction work. So, Anne, how did the struggle end? What was the result? The result was that Congress passed in June of 1940 a bill that included a language that I'll call the Territorial Amendment that allowed for what was called a special industry committee to be set up under the Wages and Hours Division of the Department of Labor, and that that committee could decide on lower wages for Puerto Rico and for the U.S. Virgin Islands. Ben, I don't know, can I give this as a spoiler now, or should I sort of say people should read the essay and see at the end what that piece of legislation was? Spoil it. Okay, so it was the Work Relief Bill for 1941, so a crucial piece of New Deal legislation, Once you attached the territorial amendment to that, there was no way that that they could avoid it. So the overwhelming number of New Dealers then voted for that piece of legislation, which enabled the Special Industry Committee to come into existence and to then recommend lower minimum wages for Puerto Rico. And the first sector that they addressed was the needlework industry, dominated by female workers. So in December of 1940, wage rates were approved, lower wage rates were approved, which cut the minimum wage in that industry as low as 12.5 cents per hour. And although the Puerto Rican minimum wage did rise over time, the differential between the federal minimum wage and the Puerto Rican minimum wage did last until 1983. So we have over four decades of what I'll call a colonial minimum wage. And You argue at the conclusion of your essay that the colonial minimum wage was a consequence of the Puerto Rican workforce being Spanish-speaking, mostly non-white, and often female. Will you say more about this dynamic? I think that what really enabled people, like a lot of New Dealers, right, to vote for this, to not really strenuously object to it and not to fight for parity for colonial citizens' minimum wages, is that there were these cultural prejudices, including racism, that were built into the non-incorporation doctrine. So again, remember that non-incorporation doctrine came out of the insular cases in the early 20th century decided by the Supreme Court, and those decisions were deeply racist decisions. And so we get to the late 1930s, and it's just kind of assumed by all parties that, well, if anyone's going to be treated differently and have a sort of second-class minimum wage, you know, why wouldn't it be these people? They don't have a vote at the federal level. They have no leverage, really. And I think for a lot of legislators, well, you know, maybe they're American citizens, but are they really? You know, are they really like us, right? So I think that those cultural prejudices that had really been encoded into this constitutional doctrine, the non-incorporation doctrine, came into play there. And so it was extremely convenient to make this happen and to, in the words of uh, Jorge Rodriguez Beruf, a great Puerto Rican historian, to pacify the colony for war. That was really the objective here. 
And I think, you know, most Americans didn't know that it happened. Most Americans went through the next few decades not knowing that Puerto Rican labor was cheaper for American industry, and that's why a lot of American corporations were moving there. And just to tie back into the current moment, what's in the news a lot right now as we're talking in mid-November is that the U.S. pharmaceutical supply, our supply of prescription drugs, has been affected by Hurricane Maria. Well, why is so much of the U.S. pharmaceutical supply produced in Puerto Rico? It's because of skilled yet cheap labor in the territory, all of which flows from this colonial status. And I see from your footnotes that you have cited the General Archives of Puerto Rico. Have you conducted research on the island? I have. I've been in the General Archives of Puerto Rico, the Archivo General de Puerto Rico, which is the equivalent of a state archive in any of the 50 states. And I've worked in a number of other archives in the island as well. I've been making inquiries to find out, try to find out how those archives have come through the hurricane. And I don't really have concrete information right now. But of course, the questions are, has there been structural damage? Has there been any water damage? And with the massive electricity cuts in Puerto Rico, where we still have less than half of the population with electrical power, right? The question is whether the air conditioning systems for these archives are working, because those systems are really important in terms of controlling humidity, which, of course, if the humidity gets too high, you can get all sorts of issues with mold and damage to paper documents. So I think those are the questions that I'd like to have answers to, and I just haven't been able to get concrete information thus far. And is there any way that our listeners can contribute to Hurricane Maria relief efforts? Yeah, the organization that I've been donating to and that I would highly recommend is the Hispanic Federation. And the website that will take you directly to their donation page is HispanicFederationUnidos.com. And I'll just spell Unidos. It's U-N-I-D-O-S. It's Spanish for United. So HispanicFederationUnidos.com. And the Hispanic Federation has also become a supporter of a march in Washington, D.C. that by the time the podcast airs will have taken place. It's scheduled for November 19th. And one of the um, platforms of that march is demanding that the Puerto Rican debt be forgiven, that it be erased or absorbed by the federal government so that Puerto Rico does not have to deal with that issue as well as hurricane recovery at the same time. Our author is Anne S. McPherson. Her article is Birth of the U.S. Colonial Minimum Wage, The Struggle Over the Fair Labor Standards Act in Puerto Rico, 1938-1941. It will appear in the December 2017 issue of the Journal of American History. Thank you so much for being with us today, Anne. Thank you, Ben. My pleasure. Our second guest today is Michael Staudenmeyer, Visiting Assistant Professor of History in Latin American and Latino-Latina Studies at Aurora University. Michael, who recently completed his Ph.D. at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, wrote his dissertation about national identity and race in Puerto Rican Chicago. His article, which appears in the December 2017 issue of the Journal of American History, is Mostly of Spanish Extraction, Second-Class Citizenship, and Racial Formation in Puerto Rican Chicago, 1946-1965. to Welcome, Michael. We're glad that you're here. Thank you. I'm glad to join you. Michael, your article opens with images from a remarkable pamphlet entitled Know Your Fellow American Citizens from Puerto Rico. Can you describe that pamphlet for our listeners? Who published it and why? This was published by the government of Puerto Rico, which had established an office in Washington, D.C. This is highly unusual. It would be sort of like having an embassy in Washington, D.C., except that, of course, Puerto Rico is not an independent country. And the purpose of the pamphlet was really to sensitize 
the neighbors of incoming Puerto Rican migrants, whether in New York or in Chicago or wherever, to some of the unexpected aspects of Puerto Rican life and experience. And so a big one, obviously, is conveyed in the title, Know Your Fellow Citizen. It is unfortunately true to this day that a significant percentage of mainland Americans do not know that Puerto Ricans are by birth U.S. citizens. The purpose of the pamphlet was really to try and create a safe landing for Puerto Rican migrants, to try to minimize the possibility of ethnic or racial tension when large numbers of Puerto Ricans arrive in a place like Chicago. So in the early years of Puerto Rican migration, the late 1940s and the early 1950s, how did Chicagoans respond to these newcomers? Well, it's a mixed bag. Certainly there are a number of negative encounters. I do not want to make it sound like everything was rosy from the beginning of the migration. But the point that I try to make in the article is that there are different layers of marginalization, perhaps, or of exclusion. And the experience of Puerto Ricans arriving in Chicago after World War II matched initially more closely with the experience of Italians or other European immigrants arriving in Chicago prior to World War II in the, in the interwar period or even before World War I such that they were not oppressed in the intense ways that African-Americans were. Now, obviously, that's a blanket statement, and there are certainly awful negative experiences that Puerto Rican migrants have upon arrival in Chicago. But on the whole, the experience is a much more of a mixed bag where there are some positive and welcoming opportunities and some experiences of exclusion, marginalization, etc., Michael, your article concerns racial formation in Puerto Rican Chicago in the decades following World War II. What do you mean by that phrase, racial formation? I borrow the phrase, as far as I know, from Michael Omi and Howard Winant, who are sociologists who've written extensively about race as not a static thing, right? There's this by now a cliche that race is a social construction, not grounded in biological science. But Omi and Winant and, and myself and many other scholars use the term to describe effectively what historians talk about as change over time, right? That the racial categories and understandings and really projects of a particular era and a particular place may not stay the same as conditions change. Why was it necessary for Puerto Rican migrants to undergo a process of racial formation when they came to the continental United States? Largely because there are distinct understandings of race and how race operates in different places, where in the United States we tend to think of race as largely being a black-white question. And also, in addition to that, there is this rule that we tend to call hypodescent or sometimes the one-drop rule that basically says if you are even remotely identifiable in any way as black, then you are black. In Puerto Rico and in much of Latin America, the racialized social system at play there has a couple of different attributes. One is that it's somewhat more flexible, right? It's not as rigid, this rule of hypodescent where you simply determine racial classification purely based upon your parentage sometimes works and sometimes doesn't in Puerto Rico. And the other is that there are just a lot more racial categories. Another scholar that I mentioned in my article, Jorge Duani, has an essay where he lists more than 20 different racial identities or categories that are comprehensible, they're legible in Puerto Rico, where in the United States, we tend to collapse everything down into this you know, very small number. 
So for Puerto Rican migrants leaving the island and coming to the mainland United States to a place like Chicago, there was an adjustment that was necessary because their expectations of their own and others' racial identities and perspectives did not match up with the reality that they encountered when they arrived in Chicago. So in Puerto Rico, in the mid-20th century, there were many more categories of race and racial identity, but perhaps those categories were more flexible and less hierarchical than in the United States? Yes, to a certain extent. One of the ways in which race functions in Puerto Rico and in much of Latin America, especially in the Circum-Caribbean, is that there is a sort of interplay between race and class that functions differently than it does in the mainland United States, such that people who obtain a sort of higher social class may, as a result, begin to understand themselves or begin to be seen as belonging to a somewhat different racial category, perhaps higher on the hierarchy. Michael, you indicate in your article that the immediate post-war years were a period of flux in U.S. racial ideologies, even in a city with as predominant a white-black hierarchy as Chicago. Can you explain that more? One of the big factors is the horror of World War II, and in particular of the Holocaust and the legacy of Nazi-German extreme racialized policies. And so that creates a situation where, for instance, the term that we use commonly today, ethnicity, is really only coming into its own in the interwar period. And it surges in importance in the period immediately after World War II as people try to grasp at a way to understand race that doesn't sound like the terrible things that the Nazis had done. Chicago is really a hotbed for this process of rethinking, in part because of the University of Chicago's sociology department, featuring in particular Robert Park and Lewis Worth, but there are many other scholars there as well, who are actively invested in the idea of diffusing racial tension. And so from their perspective, the way to do that is to talk about race through this lens of ethnicity, through understanding cultural difference rather than some sort of biological difference or inherent inferiority of one racial category below or above another. Prior to World War II, Chicago did not have a significant Puerto Rican population. How did early Puerto Rican migrants decide upon Chicago? What lured them there? Well, there are two layers to this, and I discuss it briefly in the article. There is a small Puerto Rican population in Chicago prior to World War II, largely well-educated professional class either people who have moved for their careers, or in many cases, people who have moved to Chicago temporarily to be students, often at places like the University of Chicago. But in the aftermath of World War II, there is a much larger mass migration. The first mass migration of Puerto Ricans to Chicago is largely fed by labor concerns, both a labor shortage in the Chicago area and also problems of unemployment on the island. And so there is this sort of synergistic interplay between those two that generates an initial burst of Puerto Ricans moving as what they initially perceived to be temporary laborers brought to Chicago, either to work as domestics, as in-home help, maids and cleaners and that sort of thing, or as factory workers. And then from there, a process that tends to get called chain migration kicks off, where once you've got an uncle or a cousin who has found Chicago to be an acceptable place to live and work, then you are more likely to gravitate to Chicago rather than New York or another possible destination. Let's try to give listeners a sense of scale. How many Puerto Ricans migrated to Chicago after World War II? 
The numbers are approximately 80,000 between about 1945 and 1970. So across a 25-year period, we're looking at not quite 100,000 people moving to Chicago specifically. That is in contrast to New York City, which by the time World War II ends already had almost 60,000 Puerto Ricans and in the aftermath gains well over 100,000 more. So the growth is not as large in absolute numbers in Chicago, but as a percentage, it's much more explosive in Chicago because the starting point is so low by comparison. It is easy to understand that was a period of massive social transformation for the city. By the 1940s, Chicago, of course, had an extensive history of in-migration. It was home to large communities of Italians, Poles, and Irishmen and women. Did the experiences of those migrant groups offer a path to full racial citizenship for Puerto Ricans? Well, that was the theory. And absolutely, that was the perspective adopted by large numbers of Puerto Ricans. And this is very clear in the evidence, both at a governmental or bureaucratic level, but also in the experiences of individual migrants themselves. They saw the experience, in particular of Italians, as being sort of a model. And this was true for a variety of reasons. One is that both populations are Catholic immigrants. Another is the fact that when Puerto Ricans looked at the experiences of prior generations of European immigrants, and in particular Italians, they saw that what had been possible was to avoid the problems that were associated with blackness. The notion that it was no secret that black people were oppressed in the mainland United States. And a similar experience had been had by people who were of obvious Afro-descended stock in Puerto Rico itself. So there was a desire on the part of many migrants to avoid that experience, not to avoid blackness per se, not out of some hardened form of white supremacy, but simply a strategic orientation, trying to make sure that the opportunities we have available to us are the best opportunities that we can get. How did these early Puerto Ricans themselves attempt to fit in? How did they stake their claims to full racial citizenship in Chicago? Well, there are a handful of early community organizations or mutual aid societies established by the migrants as the population grew. One of them that is probably the most important in the years after World War II is the Caballeros de San Juan or the Knights of St. John. So the Caballeros de San Juan were a sort of classic mutual aid society aimed at helping newly arrived Puerto Ricans establish themselves successfully. And so that took any number of forms. It included establishing a credit union to help Puerto Ricans save money. It included some work to do job placement for people who arrived because of family connections but didn't necessarily know where they would work. It included a variety of forms of assistance basically aimed at making the transition to Chicago as smooth as possible. And the organization grew rapidly over the course of the 1950s and into the 1960s because it was pretty successful at doing that work. Were there other ethnic or racial groups trying to establish a foothold in Chicago at this time? And if so, how did their experiences compare with those of Puerto Ricans? There are at least two that are worth mentioning. One is the time period covered by my article is, importantly, more or less simultaneous to the second great migration of African Americans. There had already been a significant Black population in Chicago through the first great migration in the time period right around and right after World War I. But the second great migration exponentially expands the population of African Americans in the city. And that's happening simultaneous to the arrival of Puerto Ricans. The other group that's worth noting here is that there is a large and growing Mexican and Mexican-American population in Chicago as well. 
And that also had roots that stretched back well to the period of World War One, but is also growing again after World War Two in, in light of people who were, in many cases, refugees from the Bracero programs further south and west. And both of those populations are groups of people that the Puerto Rican migrants are paying close attention to. And in some cases, especially in terms of the Mexican community, interacting directly with. In your article, you document tensions between Puerto Ricans and African-Americans as they attempted to put down roots in Chicago. Where did this tension come from and how is it manifest? I would say that much of the tension relates to the ways in which Puerto Ricans are finding themselves positioned as something other than black, which is not to say necessarily that they are embraced as full, equal white citizens, but that their responses in the migratory process do not look the same as the responses that African-Americans receive. So this is an era in which African-Americans are increasingly fighting for civil rights and civil equality, and the arrival of Puerto Ricans brings them into daily contact with an ethnic group that is treated in some ways differently than African-Americans, and yet not quite the same as whites. Is that correct? Yes, I would say that's correct. I, in some ways, follow Lilia Fernandez, whose marvelous book, Brown in the Windy City, talks extensively about the ways in which Puerto Ricans and Mexicans serve as sort of buffer populations between clearly and undeniably white communities and African-American communities, which are growing in size as a result of the Second Great Migration. And I certainly find evidence of that in, in my research as well, although I also find places where Puerto Ricans are identified more strongly as not black than they are as not white, again, in the initial years of the migration. In your essay, you explore Puerto Rican experiences in three facets of life as the inhabitants of a new city, their attempts to find good jobs, their quest for housing, and their interactions with the police. Can you provide an example or two about how early Puerto Rican migrants fared in these arenas? In terms of the workplace, one of the sort of initial benchmarks for the emergence of the Puerto Rican community is this process of labor migration, where people are being flown to Chicago from the island directly to serve as, again, either domestics, in-home help, or as factory workers. And in that process, the businesses that serve as labor agents, right, the sort of job placement companies, if you will, routinely identify the Puerto Ricans who arrive in Chicago as white, as very explicitly as white. And that has an impact on their access to a level of quality employment in some places. It doesn't necessarily solve all problems of unemployment, which is quite severe among Puerto Ricans, but it certainly provides a set of opportunities that might not otherwise have been available. In terms of housing, one example that I really like is this example of public housing in Chicago, which in the course of the 1950s is one place where a newly arriving migrant, whether from Puerto Rico or an African-American migrant from the Deep South, is likely to find a home. The problem is that there are a set of unwritten rules that effectively segregate the Chicago Housing Authority, the big public housing projects in Chicago, such that only some of them are available to Black people, where others are kept effectively whites only. 
In one particular case that I found on the north side of Chicago, there is a set of scenarios where Puerto Ricans move into one of these public housing projects and are not immediately prohibited from living there in the same way that African-Americans are excluded from comparable public housing projects elsewhere in the city. When it comes to interactions with the police, there's something similar that happens. And this is the spot where, in a lot of ways, the true marginalization or exclusion of Puerto Ricans becomes most clear at the earliest phase in the late 1950s. I talk about an experience where a group of Puerto Ricans complain and eventually sue the city of Chicago due to mistreatment after what had begun as a sort of argument between a number of Puerto Ricans and a number of Italians. And when the police show up, all of the officers who arrive are themselves Italian. And the Puerto Ricans feel that they are discriminated against on the basis, they say at the time, of their nationality. So that even in that context, it's not immediately clear that this is a question of race. It's more framed as a question of what we would generally term ethnicity or of nationality. But the longer that that scenario continues and the more accumulated experience Puerto Ricans have of mistreatment by the police in a city where the police are overwhelmingly white, it becomes ever more clear and harder to deny that Puerto Ricans are being racialized out of whiteness and into something else, whether that something else is being identified as black or whether that something else is, as eventually happens, being identified as this category that today we would call Latino or Latino. That process really is catalyzed in important ways by the overwhelming sequence of negative encounters that Puerto Ricans have with the police. In this early period, the late 1940s, the early 1950s, Puerto Rican migrants laid claim to the racial prerogatives of whiteness, better paying jobs, better housing, the expectation of freedom from harassment or brutality from police. They laid claims to these racial prerogatives of whiteness, sometimes with success. But by the mid to late 1950s, things began to change. How so? Well, again, an important piece of this had to do with policing and with the ever-growing number of negative encounters Puerto Ricans had with the Chicago Police Department. There's also a number of changes in terms of housing. As these migrations grow, as the numbers of both Puerto Ricans and African Americans continue to grow across the city, housing becomes more scarce and it becomes easier for landlords to begin discriminating against Puerto Ricans in the same way that they had long discriminated against African Americans. It sounds to me that one of the factors that contributed to this change was demographic pressure. Chicago's becoming much more heavily populated. Jobs are perhaps becoming more scarce. Housing is perhaps becoming more scarce. Is that a correct read? Yes, absolutely. The overall population of the city of Chicago is growing very quickly in the period after World War II. In that scenario, it becomes both easier to racialize Puerto Ricans alongside African-Americans and Mexicans, and also it becomes more productive, if you will, to do so because it provides greater opportunities for landlords either to gouge and overcharge the growing Puerto Rican population or to exclude them entirely in favor of the growing but not as rapidly population of white people. 
Michael, in your essay, you twice invoked the black poet Langston Hughes. Hughes had pointed things to say about the reception of Puerto Rican migrants in the continental United States. Can you tell us about the article he published pseudonymously in the Chicago Defender in 1953? Hughes was a regular columnist for the Chicago Defender. In many of his columns, Hughes adopted this methodology that I think is not uncommon even among newspaper columnists today, where he developed an alter ego who allowed him to get away with saying certain things that may not have been passable through the voice of Hughes himself, even though everybody who read the column knew that the person he created, whose name was Jess B. Semple or Simple, was made up, was an alter ego of Hughes. So, for instance, there's this classic line that Americans do not Jim Crow Puerto Ricans, using the concept of Jim Crow there as a verb. And he even goes so far as to say that people may look the same, right? It may be that we understand visually someone to be black, but if that person speaks Spanish rather than English on the streets of Chicago or New York or wherever then they will not be subjected to the same forms of racism as if they spoke English and thus were identifiably African-American. Can you tell us how the tenor of his Chicago Defender pieces evolved? Yeah, so from the early 1950s, he'd taken this somewhat critical look at Puerto Ricans as yet another population that is able to leapfrog African-Americans in much the same way that prior rounds of European immigrants had done by gaining social advantages over the African-American community. By the end of the 1950s, Hughes is beginning to realize that that's not exactly happening in the way that he had initially anticipated. And so he writes in 1959 that Puerto Ricans are immigrants in our country, and I always thought immigrants got welcomed with open arms. Is it because Puerto Ricans are colored immigrants that they do not get welcomed and only get high rents and rat holes to live in and cheap jobs? In other words, is there a process here where people are beginning to racialize Puerto Ricans in much the same way that they've racialized African-Americans? And that's, it's an open question still in the the end of the 1950s. By the mid-1960s, that question is answered in the affirmative. Now, as your essay looks ahead to the 1960s and 1970s, you suggest that, over time, as Puerto Ricans began to experience greater discrimination in employment, in housing, and at the hands of the police, their relations with African Americans and Mexican Americans began to evolve. Would you please say more about that dynamic and about the development of a sense of affinity? I try to end my article in a sort of a a foreshadowing approach where I'm saying, look, I end in 1965, and while there had been substantial interactions between Puerto Ricans and African-Americans and between Puerto Ricans and Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, there were no sustained political coalitions at that point. But those are soon to come as the 1960s heat up and as the growing sorts of radicalism emerge, things like the turn toward black power in the African-American civil rights movement. It is on the horizon at the end of my article that there will be these political alliances. Probably the most famous happens in the early 1980s when Harold Washington becomes the first black man elected mayor of Chicago and his electoral coalition includes both Mexican and Puerto Rican community organizers and voting populations. But we can only just barely begin to see the possibility of these when my article ends in 1965, because it takes some time for the shared condition, if you will, 
to help generate a form of coalitional politics or social movements. Michael, one of the things that's really astonished me in reading this essay and preparing this interview is the enormity of the Puerto Rican diaspora. Nearly half a million people have emigrated from the island since the year 2000, and those numbers have accelerated in the wake of Hurricane Maria. Could I ask you to think a little bit about the era in which we live now and the racialized social systems that exist today, and ponder, if you will, what these new migrants to the continental United States might expect or discover about race relations on their arrival? We are in the middle of what I've been calling the second great migration of Puerto Ricans. And it began, as you point out, in the early 2000s, as a recession hit the island well before the Great Recession in the mainland. And it's only gotten worse rather than better. There's this massive debt crisis. And then certainly everything has been exacerbated by the devastating aftermath of Hurricane Maria. So there's a couple of things that are worth noting. One is there were already, well before Maria, more Puerto Ricans living in the diaspora, that is to say largely in the mainland United States, than live on the island. And that's a fascinating historical reality that led, for instance, El Nuevo Día, which is the leading newspaper on the island. One of its first editorials after Hurricane Maria was entitled, The Diaspora is Key. The only way that the island can successfully recover from this is if there is a successful interaction between Puerto Ricans living on the island and Puerto Ricans living off the island. For Puerto Ricans living off the island in the diaspora, one key aspect of reality that I try to point to in the conclusion of my article is that today we have a generally accepted racialized social system in which there is this category that people largely call Latino or Latina and that includes very otherwise disparate populations based on ethnicity or nationality, such that people who have the broad cultural differences that exist between, for instance, Puerto Ricans and Mexicans are understood in racial terms to be grouped as a collectivity. That is deeply problematic in many ways because it flattens the diversity and complexity of multiple communities in the United States. But it also provides some very interesting possibilities for the future, again, in this concept of coalitional social movements or politics, because it greatly increases the leverage that the Puerto Rican diaspora has at its disposal if it can successfully organize alongside the much larger Mexican and Mexican-descended community in the mainland United States. Speaking of those grassroots efforts, Michael, many of our listeners may be seeking ways to help or contribute to relief in the wake of Hurricane Maria. Do you have organizations that you particularly admire? Well, I live in Chicago, and my research focuses on Puerto Ricans in Chicago, so I would highlight a group here that's called the Puerto Rican Agenda, which organized one of the very first full planes of relief supplies to arrive after the hurricane had passed back at the tail end of September. Their website is PuertoRicanChicago.org, and if you look there for a program they call Pallets and Planes, That's a great way to donate to relief efforts on the island. And I would also highlight for people who want to learn more, there is a wonderful project on the internet called PuertoRicoSyllabus.com, which was designed initially to help explain and contextualize and generate responses to the debt crisis that the island has been in for the last several years. They are currently updating to add an entire section of the syllabus that focuses on Hurricane Maria and its aftermath. And I really encourage people who are interested in learning more to pursue that as well. 
Our author today is Michael Staudenmeyer. His essay, Mostly of Spanish Extraction, Second-Class Citizenship and Racial Formation in Puerto Rican Chicago, 1946-1965, will appear in the December 2017 issue of the Journal of American History. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much for having me.